everyone, this is Caroline, and we are back for episode two. Joining me today is Dave, of course, and we have Anya and Ted for episode two, and we are going to talk about the essay exam. Guys, what have you been up to since the last episode? Oh, there's always something that's going on in the essay world, Caroline. So probably one of the um, coolest things that I have done in the last couple weeks is um, I have a customer that's doing uh, a migration to AWS from another cloud provider, and um, they do want to explore the option of working with a partner like a lot of our customers do. But this customer is a little bit unique because I think they they just trust us more, it seems like. The trust in AWS is just like a lot. And they wanted me to kind of do a lot of the work ahead of time. Like they wanted me to propose the patterns for their architecture migrations. They wanted me to provide at least uh, a tentative migration plan, which I haven't done before in such depth with a customer. Like typically we do a partner handoff and like help the partner kind of onboard to the customer environment uh, and understand what they're doing and then provide the plan. But I did a lot of that for this customer and it was really cool. Um, and I think they were really grateful for me providing a lot of the resources in case they wanted to do it in house. So I think that built a lot of trust with them. So I really enjoyed that. It was like a really good opportunity to dive deep. So that was kind of my uh, my experience on the work front. Um, how about you, Ted? What have you been up to on the work front? Oh, let's see. I've, I've been teaching. I uh, There's an instructor-led course that uh, I deliver called Developing Serverless Solutions. And I've been able to do that, deliver that course a couple times over the last couple weeks. So I get to talk about Lambda. I get to talk um about S3 in a lot of detail and uh, talk about, you know, you know, sort of moving from monolithic applications to microservice-based architectures and applications, which is a lot of fun. So it's a fun course for me to deliver. And for, for me, it's always fun just to be in front of our customers. So let's talk about designing secure architectures. And we talked a little bit before this series I love how you all have put together, it, it, it's basically like a training and it's it, it's what the exam would be. And so I think I'll be a little bit more quiet than I usually am in this and we can go through the sections, but feel free to you know keep it as cash as you want after all. I do love this format in that you don't feel like you're reading AWS documentation or that you're, you know, listening to some professionally recorded, well-scripted human being who's perfect. Uh, it's just all of you, and we're talking about this exam. So can you kind of break that down into the, the pieces, right? And so I guess the first part of that would be securing access to AWS resources. Yeah, so, you know, I think that when we look at this domain and we're talking about designing secure architectures, that's... 30% of the score, 30% of the questions that you're going to be graded on are around this domain. So if we break that down, we can get into part of that is, as you mentioned, designing secure access to AWS resources. And that really, you know, now we get into, you know, our acronyms and, and the fire hose of all of the custom AWS acronyms that we're going to use, like identity access management and IAM. What is that? 
you know, how important is IAM to everything that we do in, in AWS? You know, so I, I guess the first thing is how do we define what IAM is? I am what you I know, am, like, Ted. Yeah, I, I am what I am. Yeah. So I, I think that, you, you know, we think of, you know, what, what are some of the components of IAM? And, and some of them are very familiar to people. So we talk about users and we talk about groups and we're going to assign access rights through users and groups. We're going to give them policies to do this. Then we've got something that in the AWS world, I think is kind of unique. And that is the, the idea of a role. And when we talk about a role, we're talking about, well, you know, it's sort of a principle, you know, we, we have users that are going to have access, but what if I want to be a user that gets temporary access to do something else? So, so I'm do an example, Ted, just to kind of clarify for people. Uh, yeah, what let's say I'm a developer who's, yeah, yeah, let's say I'm a developer who is working as a tester now. Should I have different rights in the account to do that? You know, one thing I, I think very strongly about is we don't want, and I'm going to lift this up, we don't want to have all of this on the back of our keyboard. <laughs> and, and I'm showing the back of my keyboard with a bunch of login names and passwords, post it noted on the back there. Yeah, nobody wants to do that. So, so Ted, walk us through like this chain of access. Like I'm logging in, I have a username and I want to test a Lambda function. Like, like what's going on with IAM at that moment? So, you know, I, I think, you know, when we start with an AWS account, that first user that you create that's tied, um, tied to the credit card and the email address that we create the account with, we call that the root user. And that root user generally has unlimited access to the account. Um, the thing is, well, I don't always need unlimited access and maybe I shouldn't always use that account to do things. Like I definitely don't wanna tie to that root user account access keys that I use for coding. Exactly, so, Ted, and, and mention here, in fact, it's so important that one of the practices we recommend to our customers is if they're not using their root user currently for anything, just delete them. Like root access keys are so, so sensitive that if you're not using them, just delete them entirely because it'll make your environment so much more secure. Yeah, create individual users to do the individual roles that you need. And then if as a, a user in, in if I'm an IAM user in an account, well, then if I have to do other things, then, then I assume a role to do that. And an example I can give of that is I do a lot of demos and I started, uh, I started with AWS as a customer and I, I set up a, a, and I have some domain names registered in route 53. Well, when I'm doing demos for AWS, they don't let me register domain names, you know, on, on, on AWS's behalf for whatever reason, you know, tedescool.com. I'm not allowed to register that. So how do I demo using route 53 and, and setting up DNS? Well, what I did on this other account is I created a role that has read only access in my personal account that I share to my demo account. 
So now when I am demoing uh, AWS Route 53, I can show, well, this is how you do a multi-value record. And I can show that I've got one at, you know, my example domains that I use. So maybe we can also pop back up just, just one level. Uh, I want to make sure we address Caroline's original question, which yeah. was I think really good to kind of tie everything together. Like Caroline, you said, what happens when the user is logging in to like test the function, right? So how I would also add to what Ted was saying, you know, you have this concept of a user, which is typically one-to-one, -one, right? Like you have a user created in identity and access management, and it would typically correspond to like a person, somebody like me, you know, I'm logging in to test the Lambda function, right? So that user inside identity and access management service, if it has console access would typically ask me for, you know, my username and password so I can log in. So I log into the console, right? Hopefully not with sticky notes on the back of my keyboard, but I log in, right? And so this user has um, policies attached to it. We call them policies. So let me define what the policy means, right? So the policy is essentially a set of rules that allow the user to do or not do, like deny policies, certain things in the environment. So for your example, you were saying like Lambda function, right? So right. for that user, there would be a policy that says, you know, they can execute, for example, the specific Lambda function that you define based on the name and things like that, right? And so these policies would be attached either directly to the user or they can be attached to the second concept that Ted was mentioning, a group. If a user belongs to a group, let's say the group might be called testers, right? So if a user is in the testers group, that policy can be attached to the testers and again, give those same permissions to execute the Lambda function. So those two concepts of users and groups kind of play together very closely, right? Uh, but the role is again, that temporary permission. So somebody from let's say um, another account, if they want to test that Lambda function, they would uh, take that role on temporarily to log into the account and have that access to the Lambda function. So, so hopefully that kind of clarifies that. Yeah, it does. And I, and I would love if you could clarify a few more things, actually. So I want to make a policy and I want to be able to test my whole application, right? Here's a Lambda function I need to execute. Here's a queue I need to pull in. Like what kinds of things are going to go in my policy so I can execute properly? And if I want to do it from a different account, what do you mean assume role? Like, like, I think that's a really hard concept to grasp that, to be honest, every time I revisit it a few months later, I pull up the same article and I like get it really clear before I code it in my head because it is difficult. Ted, you want me to take a crack at this one? Sure. <laughs> it's, it's, I agree with Caroline. It's not yeah. an easy concept to grasp. The people who've read these docs before we empathize. Let's let's try to break it down. So so let's break this down into separate sections, right? So first of all, if you're testing your whole application, like what does that mean? Like you're logging in, you're either a user or you are a user belonging to a group. What are these policies, right? So it's very common for somebody who is logging in to have a lot of different policies, right? Like they need access to Lambda functions. They need probably access to things like S3 buckets to read data or to deposit data. They need access to uh, not just Lambda functions, but maybe looking at, 
you know, QuickSight dashboards or something like that. You know, I'm kind of throwing it around different service names, but basically what I mean is they probably need to do a lot of different things. Like it's very varied. So one thing I would, I would highlight right out of the gate is that AWS recognizes that, that this can get really hairy very fast. And one thing that we do always steer our customers to consider is the fact that there are these things called managed policies and managed policies are these sets of rules for access, things you can do and can't do that AWS creates for you. They're there out of the box. So when you're creating access policies, you can type something in like S3 and it'll filter for you and provide some pre-existing AWS managed policies for S3, things like S3 read only access, for example, or, you know, things like full access for S3, where you can read and write into S3. So those things, the customers don't, you know, touch themselves. They just use them straight out of the box, which is great because it saves them a lot of time, makes things less error prone and just is easier to, to manage for them. Right. The other thing is, um, they can create their own, but again, if they can use some of those managed policies, it just takes so much work off. So that's the first thing I would manage. Uh, I would mention is the fact that um, managed policies, great. And then you kind of create some of your own on top of that if you need something more specific or granular, right? So those, that's kind of the policies uh, point. Ted, did you want to add something here in terms of just like assigning policies or adding things to the user group? Well, uh, you know, a couple things that I could mention are, you know, what's going on in the background. Uh, we use the AWS STS uh, security token service in the background to give these limited use credentials or these time-limited credentials that are used in the background. Another concept with roles is they're not used just by people, right? So we have our applications use a role. I have an EC2 instance that needs access to a DynamoDB table. So I definitely don't want to hard code credentials onto that EC2 instance so I can have that instance instead assume a role that gives it access to that table, that S3 bucket, or that other AWS service that it needs access to. Yeah, that's perfect. I think that that's a perfect follow-up. And just to tie that back into Caroline's original comment, the same thing goes for the Lambda function that you mentioned, right? If a Lambda function needs to do something, it'll also have a role. So... I think that that ties together nicely. Um, so just to kind of wrap it all up, to go back to the um, assuming the role situation, right? So that was kind of the, the second point we didn't touch upon. The whole point of roles is temporary access, right? Temporarily giving uh, a principal, such as a user, an ability to do something. So we always think of it as, let's say you have... Um, a developer or somebody who is doing something in some account, but only needs a little bit of access sometimes to some other account like staging, right? Like typically they won't need access to staging all the time, but they might need to log in and like check some data or something, right? So the way that would typically be done is that particular user has their own sets of permissions attached to them, but the account they're trying to get into in this case staging they would define a role with these permissions to access some S3 bucket and also specify in there um, 
basically some statements that would allow a specific user to then temporarily kind of take on those permissions from the account that they are in. So the tester would have an ability to quote unquote, I'm doing some air quotes here, switch into that role, be able to uh, give up the permissions that they have originally, take on the new permissions of that other role in the staging account, do some stuff, and that's it. That kind of allows them to have a very limited set of permissions for some time to carry out a task. So that's kind of the whole point of the role switching. So you you don't give wider permissions to somebody forever. You don't want to do that. You you only want to do it for the times that they need it. Hopefully that's more clear. Yeah, and and I think you kind of touched on this, right? And we said you can move from the testing account to the staging account. Like like we kind of just over um went over how different accounts could play into having different permissions. Can you talk to me a little bit about like IAM roles and how that plays into a multi-account strategy, a multi-account strategy? Whoa, mouthful there. I think it's actually a perfect segue into the multi-account strategy. Um, Dave, you want to take a crack at that one and I'll fill in some gaps there? Yeah, I... So my head, when I when I hear stuff like this, because roles and IAM, all of it, when I first started looking at AWS, was so overwhelming in the beginning. Yeah. And I always think, you know, like the thing that stays sticks in my head was when Ted said this is 30% of the exam. So like I will probably go back to this episode anytime I have a question on role and listen to all of you because this was a great explanation. Uh, but I can't get out of my head right now of like, is AWS STS on the exam? is AWS control tower on the exam. Like out of the resources, what do I need to know for the exam? And then when I, uh, like Caroline's question, as an entire application, what do I need to know? Is that like VPC? Do I need to know NAT gateways and internet gateways? And where should I start putting my head around memorizing those things, right? Because an exam like this is a lot of play so that you get familiarity with it and you can solve problems, but also memorizing like what Ted talked about, all those terms. <laughs> yeah, there, there are a lot of terms. Um, and, and I think they're all fair game. When we talk about what does AWS Control Tower do, how do we use you know, and their components in there, like service control policies that are used in multi-account architectures. Um, yeah, you should know that. I also should know that if I have users that don't exist in IAM, maybe they are, we call them federated users, where I have Active Directory or some other service authenticating that user, and then we allow them to use a role. Um, you know, all of that is fair game, Dave. Yeah, so maybe we can sort of tie it together, right? We talked a lot about IAM. We talked about SDS, which enable us to do the role switching. So I think I think Caroline's comment about the multi-account strategy kind of is this overarching thing that would tie, hopefully, this together in people's heads, right? Because what we what we see a lot in the field is customers starting out on AWS. It's very very common for them to just have one account, right? They just get started. It's very easy. They hook up their email address and credit card and off they go, right? They have one account and for now that's fine. But as they start growing, they're typically going to discover that they need more account separation or isolation somehow, like 
the example we kept giving that we don't want developers to necessarily access staging or production, right? Or you might need some specific data in production that other people can't touch. This is kind of where the requirements to separate your accounts come in. So you have certain things in one account that other people can't touch versus developer accounts where people just do, you know, they're playing around sandbox type stuff, right? So this is where roles become kind of crucial because you can have some roles in that staging or production account, which would allow developers to temporarily assume that role, do some stuff based on the permissions attached to the policies, and then that's it and essentially just log out, so to speak, right? So they won't be able to have access to those higher environments all the time. So I feel like the ability to assume roles tie very nicely into the multi-account strategy just in general. They, they kind of go together. What do you think, Ted? Well, here, I've got a question for you, Anya. How many accounts does the average customer huh. have? That's a right. great question. Uh, and we were just we were just looking at kind of trying to get our head around that with some of our customers. Like I was saying, it's very, very common when you're starting out to just have one. And as you're, you know, there, there's no limit to really to, you know, to how granular you want to, to make this, but it really depends on your requirements, right? So a lot of customers then start separating it out for things like QA or somewhere where they're, you know, automated tests take place or their QA team does some testing, they might break out an account for staging, which really closely mimics production, but is separate, right? Then you would have a production account or a number of production accounts for your workloads. They might have um, accounts for things like log archiving or their security services. So there's many different ways to break that out. It really depends on the customer requirements. And if people are interested to dive into the best practices here, we can certainly put some links into the comments on this episode because there are many different ways to separate your accounts. Uh, no customer really does it the same way. It really depends on their data requirements and the security requirements for their data and how they organize their teams and things like that. And so Anya, I think when, sorry, Ted, I think when I was like starting to wrap my head around like a multi-account strat a multi-account strategy, I was like, wow, I'm an expert, one for every environment. And then I moved on to like real world solutions. And I'm like, wow, organizations are really complex. Like we have this one team over here doing something and like my app needs to talk to their app in like every single environment. And so I want to start to talk about like how how do VPCs play into this multi-account strategy? How do we do the networking piece of that? That's always something that I think, you know, to this day, it's ever-changing and they're always coming out with best practices. Yeah, I think that, uh, you know, when we start talking about designing secure workloads and applications, which is, you know, a big bullet point in here, uh, VPCs, you know, our virtual private clouds, this is, well, okay, I get to design this network infrastructure that we're going to use. And that's local to my account. So a role is really important here because now I want to be able to share that out to let other maybe accounts access resources that we build inside of this virtual private cloud or network space that we are setting up. That's yeah, absolutely right. Uh, and in terms of what you mentioned, Caroline, uh, having the services communicate with each other, right? 
There are certainly different ways to do that across VPCs. That's very common that you have to do it. Uh, and customers obviously have surfaced that need. So there's multiple different ways to do it, um, either through something uh, that virtually um, connects those VPCs, kind of creating a common logical network. That's one option that customers can um, pursue. Uh, or uh, they can expose specific services through specific endpoints to avoid exposing kind of their one VPC network to the other entirely, right? That's also an option. Uh, so it really just depends on the customer's requirements and need, need to dive into that a little more. Right. And so, and so I think Ted started to touch on this, right? He started talking about the roles to get this connection going between two VPCs, whether they're in the same account or not. But like, there are other things in this networking infrastructure that we need to configure so we can get that message going back and forth. Can you walk us through some of those? Sure. Uh, you know, when we start thinking about, let's say I have an EC2 instance, how are we protecting this? Now, of course, the customer has, you know, we have this shared responsibility model where the customer takes some of the responsibility, like the host-based intrusion protection system if they have one, host-based firewalls. But then we also have to configure what goes around that instance. So we have security groups. We have, you know, so the security group is a firewall. I think of it as a virtual firewall that by default allows all traffic from the instance out, but doesn't allow traffic in unless we define it. Then around that, at the subnet level, we can have a network access control list. We have route tables that basically configure, is this subnet publicly reachable or not? Is it a public subnet? Is it a private subnet? Um, for IP traffic and IP traffic going out, you know, we have to think about how do we get to a network gateway? or an internet gateway, I'm sorry, let me rephrase that. How do we get to an internet gateway? Are we using NAT gateways to allow private traffic to initiate traffic out to the internet through that internet gateway? So there's a lot here. And, and I think that when we look at all of the security controls that we look at, at at the virtual private cloud level, there are many different layers. I think of it as an onion. And we have layer upon layer upon layer. And uh, the idea here is that, you know, we want to have overlapping security controls. So if we misconfigure one, the others can compensate for that. We want to have defense in depth. I'm sorry. I'm just, I'm just sort of, I, I just threw out a whole acronym soup there. Um, Don't be sorry, Ted. I love it. I'm uh... Yeah, I totally agree with the, with the layered onion analogy, right? Ted, you, you kind of, talked a lot about the different components here uh so so dave uh if you if if you think we we don't need any additional you know summaries or anything here just nix all this out right what i'm gonna say um i was just gonna say that i you know i totally agree with with the layered onion analogy because there's just so much here but if we kind of recap everything and go from the outside in, right? We do have the VPCs, which is the virtual private cloud, right? And then we are gonna have subnets within it, which are gonna separate our network into specific chunks, right? And around these subnets, we're gonna have 
access control list that allows certain things in and out of the subnet. Within the subnets, we're going to have uh, things like EC2 instances running and allow, and around those, we're going to have our security groups, which again, allow certain traffic out based on the, uh, based on the uh, rules within them. So that's kind of everything, right? From the outside in. Cool. Yeah, I think um, can we uh, want to go into the anatomy of a, uh, an exam question? Did we do that? I would love if you know, because we were just getting to know each other, Ted. Yes. I, I would love I would love a sample question. But I have one thing. Oh, my goodness. This was even hard for me on the cloud practitioner to memorize is governance. Like does data governance come into this. Mm -hmm. Is this something I need to think about when I'm going to take it? Like how long do I keep data? Uh, I know we have services that manage keys for that kind of stuff. Like, where does that all fit in? And you mentioned a little bit of the data security controls, Ted, when you were walking through. Um, how much should I be aware of that and any tips on that? And then we can do some an exam question. I love it. Yeah, I mean, when, when we talk about data security controls, there, there's a lot there. Uh, you know, who is responsible to define who's responsible for the data? How long do we keep the data for? Do we encrypt the data? Is the data encrypted at rest? Is it encrypted in transit? What services do we get to use for that? You know, there's a lot. We can talk a lot. You know, another, we talked about IAM as being really integral to everything that we do, but another service that's really integral is the AWS Key Management Service or KMS, uh, where we build keys. Uh, and do we use synchronous keys? you know, asynchronous keys. When is the best time to use those? These are all questions that you should really know as you're going into the architecting exam. Um, and then when we're taking our, our data, how do we make sure that our data is redundant, resilient? What are our policies as far as backing up that data? Where do we back it up? Why should we back it up? Right, because data is going to evolve and change over time. You know, I think that when we look at the AWS architecture, it gives us a lot of re resilience. You know, for example, if we talk about S3 and how it's designed for 11 nines of durability, well, that's great. And I have multiple copies of my data in multiple availability zones. But what if I overrode it? Well, maybe I should turn versioning on for that as well. You know, maybe I need another copy of my data in another region. You know, these are all things that we have to determine before we build as, yeah. as a solutions architect. K KMS How much wouldn't, resilience um, do we need? How much redundancy? KMS wouldn't and, stick in my head, Ted, when I was practicing. So I made it a, a, a house DJ, somewhere around like 130 beats per minute. It just sounded like KMS would be a really cool DJ name for some techno. A cool teaching name. <laughs> Doesn't awesome. it? Awesome. I could see Cameron. When it's Steve out in Brooklyn, like yeah. singing some tracks. <laughs> right? Like kind of and then it made security fun for me. Um I love I love I didn't mean to interrupt you. I was just sharing you how I memorized terms that I had no idea. Hey, no, no, I I'm, I'm, I sit here and I think of that that TikTok video where where they go, What 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 does a DJ even do? And I just think of someone going, you know, what does a solutions architect even do? Do, do. Do, 
do, do. Oh, we should make a remix. I've made actually some remixes from episodes. I'll, I'll share offline. Maybe I'll, po I'll post them sometime for people, but they're, they're pretty funny. One guest, and we're close. She, she wouldn't mind me sharing it, but she had 45 ums in one episode that I took out, and each one was a specific um, and I ma actually made it into a party mix. And it's pretty cool. <laughs> yeah. I think I you can make like an intro song out of it. <laughs> yeah. So can we do a sample question? I'm excited to like to hear it. Yeah. Are you, are you up for it? Yeah. So let's talk, let's talk about a, a sample question. So I, I think, you know, when we look at the structure of a question for this exam, they are more complex than our foundation level questions in the cloud practitioner uh, exam. So these are going to... The object of, of, of these questions is not only to have you identify the right service, but also identify that you're using it properly. So, so let me give you one. I'm not going to give you multiple choices. We're on a podcast. It's hard to, to keep everything straight. But let's say you're a new architect at a company uh, that runs a web application in a VPC across three availability zones. The application tier Amazon EC2 instances are running in private subnets and now and need to download software patches from the internet. EC2 instances cannot be directly accessible from the internet. What actions should be taken to allow the EC2 instances to download the needed patches? Okay, so what would we do? What would how would we solve this question? We well, gave we you a scenario. Remind, we should remind our listeners as well, Ted, what kind of options they might see, right? They might see just options, let's say, that are multiple choice and you have uh, A through D, let's say, right? And they would right. have some options. Or they might have um, uh, multiple response where you have certain things uh, presented and then you have to select two of them. You know, so say select case, two. What kind of question uh, are you, are you uh, presenting to us here? Yeah, so since I don't have the, the the answers, I would think of this as probably one that might have a select two. Um, and I would have two, two possible correct answers, and then I'd have some distractors there as the other maybe three choices. So I think that's how I would see that type of question uh, on the exam. But I thought we'd just talk about it and leave it sort of open-ended. If I gave you a question... You know, one thing that I mentioned, or, or one thing that I notice about most questions is there's usually a qualifier at the end of the question. And that qualifier that is going to help you sort of narrow down the best choices. So qualifier might be, what would be the most co cost-effective answer? Right. Okay, what would be the most resilient? And a lot of times we'll see that. So here I have which actions should be taken allow the EC2 instances to download needed patches. Okay, that, that's a, a decent qualifier, but sometimes it'll be a little bit more specific. I hear download. I think network, Ted. I think network as well. So if you did have instances running on a private subnet, I do have solutions architects here. How what would you what would you build for the architecture to get these to download? Yeah, so we were talking about uh, the different types of uh, subnets, right? We have we can have public subnets and we can have private subnets, right? So by definition, public are the ones that have access to the internet. But in terms of the question, part of the question said that you should not 
be able to directly have access from the internet, right? So that kind of excludes that part. So you have to have them running in private subnets. And that's where one of the important components uh, comes in uh, to be able to call out to the internet. There's two that you have to keep in mind. Uh, we have this thing called the NAT gateway and also the internet gateway, right? So we didn't touch about it on that in great depth yet in our discussion, uh, but the internet gateway is something that we would attach to the VPC to actually allow things to connect out to the internet. But the NAT gateway is super important. It stands for uh, network address translation uh, to be able to have instances in our private subnets access the internet through the internet gateway, but not be able to actually have their IPs exposed and be able to be accessed directly. So I'm going to say that we're going to need to be looking for something with a NAT gateway in there. Yeah, I, I would agree with that. We would put a, a NAT gateway in our public subnet and then the, the, the subnet that actually had the instances, the EC2 instances running in it, we'd make sure that they had a route in, in the, the route table that would send traffic to that NAT gateway. And, uh, you know, the one thing that I will mention about why do we need NAT gateways? Why don't we have enough public IP addresses is we're, we're talking about IPv4 addresses and network address translation is sort of something that's been in existence for the last, I don't know, since the 90s. Uh, RFC 1918 talks about how we are, you know, using these blocks of addresses to combat IP address starvation. Yeah, but the other Yeah, thing I could go down that. That could be a whole rabbit hole we could go into. Yeah, um, but I think you the know, thing to keep in mind, Ted, also is that it's not necessarily just about, you know, the number of IP addresses. It's also really about security, right? We don't want people hitting our um, instances directly. So we put them behind something that sort of obscures them in terms of hiding them from the outside world and the internet, right? So that's kind of a big purpose of the NAT gateway as well. Yeah, to prevent the, the direct traffic from the internet to get to that instance. Exactly. I have a, a quicker question since I have you both. When I get questions like this on the exam, I still remember taking SAT training uh, back in like <laughs> high school. and. Like one of the piece of advice was if you're on a really long exam and you spent more than, it was like down to like minutes on questions. So if there's a certain number of questions and I find that I get one of these scenarios and it could be an awesome scenario, but it's not multiple choice. And I find I'm spending like more than three minutes. Is that still a thing that I, that you would like recommend? Because I know at least it was for the cloud practitioner. I think we can go back and forth, right? Like we can review these questions. Sometimes yeah, I remember, mark yeah. And I remember some questions yeah, actually helped me. Yeah, they helped me think about other questions. So is, is that a piece of advice you have in there? If I see Definitely. something? Okay. Definitely mark them, come back and review them, but make sure you answer every question. Okay. Don't spend too much time. Uh, you know, there are different ways that, that people go through and, and have a test taking strategy, but a lot of times, uh, the way I take tests is I go through and I, I take my first guess and I answer. And if, it, if it's taken me too long, I choose an answer. I mark it and I come back to it a little bit later. I also have a piece of advice that, that I didn't mention in our last episode. I need to make sure that I do. If English is not your native language and you are taking this exam in English, you can get an extra 30 minutes on the exam. 
Oh, wow. Okay? I didn't and know you that. just have to ask for that. Uh, and I will give a link in the show notes on That's where awesome. you can request that. Uh, I would, if you have the opportunity to take advantage of that, take advantage of it. it uh, once you have that noted on your account, it's good for all of the exams that you take with AWS. Wow. And maybe another strategy we can mention, right? Uh, just in terms of your point, Dave, regarding the SAT, there is some value also to glancing down at the options, right? Because sometimes you can eliminate some of the options based on what you see. Sometimes when you read the answer choice, it logically doesn't make sense to you uh, as a person who understands the terminology and how they work together. So you may be able to exclude an answer just by looking at the answer choices. That's something that also helps me. Yeah, and Anya, on that point, I always like to look at that qualifier that Ted was mentioning too. Yeah. And it's like fastest. And I'm like, that's having you do 10 new things. I'm like, give me the one that's having me do one new thing. Right. I'm like, let me find the two that tell me to do one new thing and let me make sense out of those two options. Yes, 100% agree. Or, or you know, most cost effective. And then you're looking at the options and you would be able to eliminate something that's really expensive. So yeah, I 100% agree on that. These are the insider, insider tips and tricks. Yeah, and you know, a couple things that I can say about the exam is they work very hard not to put trick questions on, on the exam. They're not trying to stump you. They are trying to make sure that you have a depth of knowledge. So, you know, don't think that th this is a trick question. But again, like I said in the last episode, you really disagree with the question, put a comment on it. They are read. Awesome. Awesome. Well, it's good to know that all my notes and the inside of my brains that I write down on those exams, someone actually gets to read them or sorry that someone actually gets to read them. Yeah, um, and, <laughs> you know, we were talking about the, uh, the questions a little bit. Uh, you're not going to see math on these. They're not going to be math questions. You're not going to have true false questions. Sorry about that. Uh, and you're not going to see open-ended questions that have fill in the blank. So they are going to be multiple choice or select two. Awesome. Well, hopefully everyone learned a thing or two about designing secure architectures. And hopefully you can join us for our third episode to learn about building resilient architectures. Thank you, Anya and Ted. And um, looking forward to um, chatting with you both again soon. Thanks for having us. Thank you for having us. Thank you both. And I'll make sure you've sent us a bunch of links here to... Uh, for the audience to actually use to study. So I'll make sure I include those as well. Thank you.